God hates sin. And God is angry with sinners. And the Babylonians are coming now to mete out his discipline, both on his own people in Judah and upon the pagan nations round about them. And not only that, but someday, according to this book of Zephaniah that we've been studying, someday God is going to pour out final judgment upon the whole earth. All the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. These have been the great themes thus far as we have worked our way through the book of Zephaniah. And if you turn with me just now back to that book, back to the book of Zephaniah, and specifically to chapter 3 and verse 8. If you turn there with me now, we will see God returning to the theme of the fire of his jealousy and of his final judgment on the earth once again this morning. Zephaniah 3, verse 8, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. All the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Those are startling words, and they are true words. And we find these kinds of words not only here in Zephaniah 3, but at various other points in the Bible as well. We find them, for instance, in the final book of Scripture, where we read that Jesus, the Son of Man, is coming with the clouds, riding on a white horse, and treading the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And he will tread that winepress thoroughly. As God puts it here in Zephaniah, all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. And this has been... By and large, the tone of God's voice throughout these first two plus chapters of Zephaniah. And we do well to take careful note of the tone of his voice, to take careful note of these warnings and promises that God is making, and to shudder and to repent of our sin. But then, we will also do well in the final verses of this prophecy to notice the sudden change in God's tone before the book ends. We will do well this morning to notice that whereas the message thus far in Zephaniah has been heavy on judgment with just a few sprinkles of mercy, now at the end of the book the balance is completely reversed so that the filling in this last portion of the book is incredibly sweet with only just a few drops of bitter Mixed in. For then, chapter 3, verse 9, then in the last day mentioned in verse 8, in the day of God's final judgment against sinners, in the day of his devouring the earth, for then, we are told, beginning in verse 9, then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. In that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, 
and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Father, there is great judgment coming from your hand upon this earth. The whole earth is to be burned with fire, and yet... Here, as we make our way toward the end of this prophecy, are people who remain, people who dwell securely, people who are rescued from their rebellion and their sin. Thank you for the change in the tone at the end of this book, and thank you for the hope that it gives us from your hand. Help us to rejoice in that hope as we consider it today from Zephaniah 3, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not as familiar with the minor prophets here at the end of the Old Testament as perhaps we are with the New Testament books that follow them. But the minor prophets aren't always as difficult as we might at first think because notice how this book of Zephaniah is simply stating some of the same big truths that we know so well from the New Testament. God hates sin. But, as we have just been saying, God provides redemption for those who repent. The day of the Lord is coming, and in that day God will judge both his, will both judge his enemies, verse 8 here, but he will also rescue his remnant, verses 9 through 13. And I could just as easily be preaching those truths this morning from a whole host of other passages, Old Testament and New, couldn't I? God's hatred of sin, but his love for sinners and desire and plan and purpose to redeem them. God's judgment on the earth, and yet God's rescue of those who turn to him in repentance and faith. The message of the Bible really is one unified whole. So that I'm preaching truths today and over the last couple of weeks as well from Zephaniah that you've heard many other times from all sorts of other places in the scriptures. And the specific morsel of truth that we get to taste and see today is a particularly sweet one. Today, the truth that will linger on our palates for the next several minutes together, and hopefully as you go on through the week, is to think about what sort of people God is going to make us to be when Christ returns, and when this world is no more, verse 8, and when the age of eternity has begun. What sort of people are we going to be? That's what verses 9 through 13 are describing, is it not? The earth is going to be burnt up, verse 8, and completely wiped clean, we saw in chapter 1. And then, here in verse 9, when this age has ended, and when the new age has begun, then, verses 9 through 13, we have this marvelous description of what we will be like in those days, of what God is going to make us if we belong to Christ, if we're among those who have sought the Lord, chapter 2, verse 3, who have bowed the knee to Christ, chapter 2, verse 11. Let me just pause and ask you, have you bowed your knee to Christ? Have you come to recognize your sin against God like the people in Zephaniah's day needed to do? Have you come to recognize His right to punish your sin? And... Have you come to recognize his incredible mercy in sending Jesus to absorb that punishment for you? And have you repented of that sin? And have you come to trust in this Jesus as the only one who can rescue you from it? Are you really a Christian this morning? 
If so, the marvelous promises in our text this morning are for you. And they're about you. They describe what you will be in the day when Jesus returns. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you may be. If you will repent of your sin, if you will flee to Christ as your only Savior, and then these promises will be your promises too. Indeed, I hope that they might be before you walk out the door this morning. But what are the promises? What sort of people does God promise that we will be when Christ has come and when this age has ended and when we dwell with him forever in a new age and on a new earth? Well, let me give you four answers this morning, four characteristics from this passage of God's people in the days of eternity. I hope they'll whet your appetite for that day. First of all, in that day, we will be a cleansed people. A cleansed people. This is probably the most pervasive theme in our text this morning, so we'll spend more time on it than on any of the other three. The people of God in the days of eternity will be a cleansed people, a purged people, a purified people. Now, of course, in a very real sense, we are already cleansed, as Jesus teaches us in John 13, and he is continually cleansing us, as we saw on Wednesday night, through the process of sanctification. But in that day, when Christ will dwell with us on the new earth, in that day we will be fully cleansed. In that day we will be finally cleansed. And in a number of ways, according to this passage. Notice, first of all, that the church in that great day will be cleansed of her guilt. Cleansed of her guilt. Now, our text doesn't say that in so many words. In other words, verses 9 through 13 don't specifically mention our guilt, but cleansing from guilt is richly embedded in this passage because the people that God is speaking about, the people that he's speaking to in this passage, are guilty. They are sinners. They are people, if you notice in verse 11, who have rebelled against the Lord. So God is speaking to people who are patently Guilty, deserving of eternal death. And yet, when we read this passage, the earth is destroyed in verse 8. All the nations are gathered to be burned up in the fires of God's wrath in verse 8. And the fire has fallen, as God describes it here. And these guilty people from verse 11 are still alive after the fire falls which tells us that though they were guilty, though they deserve to be among those who were burned up, yet God has forgiven them. God has cleansed their guilt. That's why they're still alive in the last days. God, as we understand these things even all the more clearly from other parts of Scripture, God has washed away their guilt in the blood of the Lamb, in the blood of His own dear Son. And you know, this is one type of cleansing among all that we're going to notice over the next few minutes. This is one type of cleansing that actually is already complete in this life if you belong to Jesus. We said this passage presents the full and final cleansing that God will accomplish for his church when he ushers in the eternal age, and that's true. But here is one aspect of our cleansing which, if we are in Christ today, is already complete. If you're in Christ this morning, if you, are, are, if you are a repentant sinner, trusting in Jesus alone as your Savior, then you will never be and you never will need to be any more cleansed of your guilt than you are right this very moment. 
For as Jesus said in John 13, in this sense you are completely clean. The people in our text today that Zephaniah is speaking to in the first instance, they were cleansed of their guilt before the hammer stroke of God's final judgment ever was to fall. That's why they are going to make it safe through the fire. They've already been cleansed in this sense. And this is why we will make it safe through the fire if we are in Christ, because we have already been fully cleansed in this matter of our guilt. The certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, Colossians 2, our rap sheet against a holy God or before a holy God, in other words, has been canceled out, Paul says, because Christ has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not only is there no condemnation when Jesus comes again, but there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The church in eternity and even now is cleansed of her guilt. But then notice in verse 11 that in that great day, we will also be cleansed not only of our guilt, but of our shame. Our shame in that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. In that day you will feel no shame. Sin is shameful, isn't it? We said on Wednesday night that if we were to put all of your sins or all of my sins on a blackboard, and if we were to wheel that blackboard out into this room, we'd all be so ashamed, so embarrassed, so sick to have our deeds brought out into the light, and in some ways, rightly so. But, says the Lord in verse 11, in that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. The shame will be cleansed. It will be wiped away. Not because sin has ceased to be shameful. Not because we have gotten over how bad sin is and we now think, oh, well, you know, it wasn't that big a deal after all. No, our shame will be gone because in that day we will understand God's grace with clearer minds and with fuller hearts than ever we have done in this life. And our sense in that day of our acceptance in the Beloved, will outshine the shame that we feel for our sins so as to melt it completely away in the warmth of God's love for us. Cleansed of our guilt, cleansed of our shame, and also in that day cleansed in the depths of our hearts. It's true here and now by the power of the new birth and by the process of sanctification. Even now, our hearts both have been cleansed and are continually being cleansed by God so that we're becoming more like Jesus all the time. But we know, don't we, from our own experience that there is ugliness still left inside. There is still sin in our hearts, still filth in the core of our beings so that we are truly clean morally but not yet fully clean morally. But in that great day of eternity, we will be. Because notice the difference that has come over God's people in this passage as God describes them in the day of Christ's return. Whereas they once turned to idols, now in verse 9, they pray to the Lord. Whereas they once served their own selfish ends, now at the end of verse 9, they serve the Lord. And they worship the Lord in verse 10. And they are humble in verse 12. 
And then here's the most astonishing statement that shows us the change of our hearts, the final cleansing of our hearts in that great day in verse 13. Here's the one thing which, even if we can say these other things about ourselves, that we pray and that we serve and that we worship and that we're humble, can we really say in this life what God says about His people in verse 13? The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. When Jesus comes, when we live with Him on a new earth, we will do no wrong. We can't speak like that now because our hearts, while they are truly clean, are not fully clean. Yet, but we will speak like this then, in that day when our cleansing will be complete down in the depths of our heart. I hope that's one of the things that you're looking forward to when you contemplate eternity. The fact, verse 13, that in eternity, when you are with Christ, you will no longer do any wrong. Yes, when we think about eternity, we look forward to reunions, which is right, And more than anything else, we long to be with Christ and to see Him as He is. But it is a sign of growing Christian maturity if, in addition to those things that we're looking forward to, we also long for eternity. We long for heaven and we long for the new earth that we are discussing today because we know that in that day we will finally be free of our sin, totally cleansed in our hearts. And then still thinking about God's cleansed people, notice that in that day that out of the overflow of a cleansed heart, we will speak with cleansed lips. Did you notice that clean lips are a significant theme in this passage? Verse 9, For then I will give to the people's purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. And then again in verse 13, The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. One of our great downfalls in this life, one of the surest signs of our sinfulness, says the book of James, is the lack of control that we have over our speech. Even as believers, the way we are prone, some of us to lie, others of us to gossip, some of us to criticize, others to complain, some to speak in anger, others to boast. Our tongues are so hard to control. Our lips are so unclean. But all of these things will be no more when Jesus comes again. Won't that be glorious? Don't you often find yourself kicking yourself because of the irritable or selfish or just mean or foolish or proud things that sometimes come so easily out of your mouth? If you're a mature Christian, you probably do. But in the new earth, no more kicking yourself for this or for any other sin. And what a good day that will be. In that day, we will no longer have to say with Isaiah, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Because then, says the Lord, I will give to the people's purified lips. Verse 9. So that instead of slandering, instead of complaining, instead of gossiping, instead of criticizing, instead of moaning, instead of self-promoting, instead of all of these things that we're prone to, all of us, verse 9, may call on the name of the Lord. Cleansed of guilt, cleansed of shame, cleansed in our hearts, cleansed in our lips. And then finally, in that day, the church will be cleansed of unbelievers. 
cleansed of unbelievers in the middle of verse 11, for then I will remove from your midst your proud, exulting ones. In that day, God will remove from our midst our proud, exulting ones. Try as we might, the church in this world is never going to have complete purity in its membership. False converts are always sprinkled in with the true. Proud, exalting ones always find themselves into the midst of God's church. Now, we should try, according to Matthew 18, for a pure church membership. We should try, according to the principles of the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31, to draw the boundaries of church membership only around those who actually know the Lord. And we do try that. But try as we might, the membership of the visible church in this world will never be completely pure in terms of only being made up of believers. There will always be proud, exalting ones, maybe not in every local church, but in the church and in churches in general. There will always be false converts among the true. Sometimes it's just because in receiving members carefully as we might do it, we can't see the heart like God sees the heart. And so even when we do our due diligence, people come through that don't actually know the Lord. Other times the church is a mixture of true Christians and false because that particular church has taken very little care to distinguish between the holy and the profane. But in any event, there will always be in this world those who come among God's people, those who count themselves among God's people, but who are actually, whether they know it or not, still lost in their sins. Their hope is in themselves. And their course of life is directed by themselves. And many times they might create great difficulties in the church because they don't think the thoughts of God. But someday, in the day of Jesus' return, according to verse 11, the church will be cleansed. Someday the church will not be plagued by the proud, by those who think they can save themselves, who think they should be able to guide themselves. The church in the new earth will be a cleansed church. For then, verse 11, I will remove from your midst your proud, exalting ones. So this is the first thing and the most extensive thing that we'll see in this passage today. The church in the new earth, the church when Christ comes again, the church in that day will be a cleansed church, cleansed of her guilt, cleansed of her shame, cleansed in her heart, cleansed in her lips, cleansed in her membership. And just think what it is like Just think, even now, what it is like to be dirty and then to be clean, finally. Think what it's like to have been a July's day, maybe a January day, as warm as the weather has been lately. But just think about what it would be like in the midst of July to spend the whole day laboring out in the yard, dirt caked beneath your fingernails, particles of grass in your hair, mud all over your clothes, sweat covering nearly your entire shirt, salt of the sweat caked into your face and on your eyelids, And then to finally be able to come in at the end of it all and to get a shower. And to finally be clean. And what will eternity be like after the long July heat of this life? After toiling our whole lives long in filth, much of it our own, some of it not, but filth that is far worse than anything that you can ever dig up in the yard. What a blessing What a joy, what a relief, what a mercy to finally be cleansed at the end of it all. That is the promise of the gospel. That is what we will experience in eternity. In that day, we will be a cleansed people. 
But then in the second place, and a little more briefly, in that day we who belong to Christ will also be a humble people. A humble people. Verse 12. I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. Now I know we covered this humility just briefly under the portion about a cleansed heart in the last heading. But I think that humility is signal enough as a characteristic of God's saints in glory, that it merits separate consideration on its own. And in that great day, the people of God will be humble. And for a couple of different reasons, it seems to me. One is that, as we saw, God is going to remove the false believers, so often characterized by pride in verse 11, out from among the true saints of God, and he's going to leave behind, verse 12, a humble and lowly people. And this idea of God leaving a humble and lowly people, I believe, is a hint that the true believers that God is leaving in verse 12 were a humble and lowly people before God left them. They were humble and lowly even before God removed the proud out from among them. In other words, even before they reach eternity, even in this life, the true people of God are characterized by humility, by lowliness of spirit. Else they would have been among those whom God plucked out from the midst of the church in verse 11, right? So the difference between believers and unbelievers, one of the big differences is the difference of humility and pride. So that humility actually is one of the basic Christian virtues. You can't be a Christian without being humble. It's been said that the door into God's kingdom, while it is a marvelously open door for whosoever will enter through Christ, yet the open door is also a low door. You have to stoop to enter. Your head must be bowed in humility in order to get through. And that's a striking picture, isn't it? You cannot enter the kingdom of God with your head held high. Not because humility is some sort of salvation-earning work. It's not. You can't earn your salvation by humility or any other work. But the point, rather, is that you have to be humbled in order to admit that you need salvation. You have to be humbled in order to be willing to ask God to do for you what you have now realized you cannot do for yourself. You'll never cry out to God for mercy and for help if you think that you've got everything under control, right? You know the classic picture, don't you? The man is driving around this strange city, and he's actually going in circles. His wife realizes that, and he realizes it too eventually, but he won't stop for directions. What's his problem? His problem is, that you can't, is not that you can't get there from here. His problem is not that there's no road that will take him to his desired destination. His problem is that he's too proud to stop and admit that he needs help. And until he is humbled by passing by the same Burger King three times in a half an hour, he's never going to find his way, is he? And it's the same thing with entering the gates of the kingdom of God. We won't enter unless we have been humbled to the point of admitting that we can't get there ourselves. Before you are willing to cry out for help, you have to be humbled. And I say that you have to be humbled, with a D on the end, humbled, and not just that you have to be humble. I say that purposefully. I used humbled, the passive verb, rather than humble, the adjective, 
on purpose. Because humility is not something that you and I possess on our own. Humble is not something that we are by nature. It's not an adjective that applies to us innately. Rather, humility is something that has to be granted to us, something that has to happen to us. We are not humble by nature, but we may be humbled by grace. It's true, some of us possess a little less natural pride than others. Others of us have had some measure of humility bred into us by training or by life's difficulty, but none of us is innately humble. All of us, if we're going to cry out for God's mercy, if we're going to admit that we need rescued, all of us have to be humbled by God, since we're not naturally humble ourselves. So that far from being a work that merits salvation, and even far from being an attitude of heart that we have to adopt before God will begin to work salvation in us, it is God even who works the humility itself. Humility is not a prerequisite to salvation. It's part of salvation. It's part of the new birth. It's one of the first things that God works in our souls as he brings us to himself. And where that leaves us as we return to our thoughts in verses 11 and 12 is to realize that God's remnant in verse 12, the people whom he leaves behind after cutting away the cancer of the haughty, those that remain, the true believers in other words, who are humble and lowly in the great day, were people who were humble and lowly already. Not by nature, but by God's grace. They have been made humble and lowly. They've come to see their sin. They've come to see their helplessness. They've come to see their need. That's a description of all true Christians, isn't it? And that's one of the reasons I mentioned why God's people will be a humble people in the great day of Christ's return, because God is already humbling us in this life. But then the other reason why the people of God in the new earth can be described as a humble, lowly people is because, as we said before about the cleansing of the heart, in the great day of the Lord's return, God is going to perfect the work that he has begun in us here and now. God has made us in some measure, and he is making us in greater measure humble and lowly in this life. And if he is doing that, then surely he will finish that project in the life that is to come. For I am confident of this very thing, wrote the Apostle Paul, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And when is the day of Christ Jesus? It's the day we're talking about in this chapter. When God will destroy the earth, verse 8, when God will remove the proud, verse 11, and when he will leave behind his humble, believing people, in verse 12. And the confidence of Philippians 1.6 is that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, until the day of Zephaniah 3. The confidence of this verse is that if God has humbled you, he'll continue humbling you all down through the thoroughfares of your life until, to use Paul's words, until Jesus comes again and the work is finally complete. And so the man or woman of God, the girl or boy of God has been humbled now. He or she will continue being humbled and learning how to humble him or herself. And when the great day dawns, when Christ shall come again, God will complete the work and leave for himself a humble and lowly people and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. They will take refuge in the name of the Lord. That last line of verse 12 brings us to the third thing we need to see 
As we think about the characteristics of the people of God in the days of eternity, not only will we be a cleansed people and a humble people, but in that day we will also be a secure people. A people, according to verse 12, who will take refuge in the name of the Lord. A secure people. A people who take refuge in the name of the Lord, verse 12. And a people, according to verse 13, who will surely also find refuge in the name of the Lord. For, verse 13, at the end of the verse, they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Security. They will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Have you heard that sort of language before? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me, in the words of Zephaniah, feed and lie down. And that picture of the sheep lying down in the middle of these feeding grounds is a picture of security, isn't it? In this life, the sheep can lie down in the pasture and not anxiously look about themselves because their shepherd is with them. His rod and his staff, they comfort them. His rod and his staff ensure that whether wolves may come or lions or whatever, the shepherd will beat them back. And so they lie down in security with no one to make them tremble. But then think of it. How much more will the sheep feel secure? How much more will we feel secure When in the days of eternity, we not only have the shepherd's presence with us, assuring that he will beat back the wolves, but when in the days of eternity, we will dwell in his presence after he has finally beaten them all back for good. When the devil and his angels and his earthly minions who might have persecuted us sore have all been cast into the lake of fire, we will surely in that day feed and lie down with no one to make us tremble. Brothers and sisters, we in America, I know, may not be facing many persecutors yet. But Judah and Jerusalem were in the ancient days when Zephaniah wrote. And our brothers and sisters in many places in the world today are persecuted still. And some of us may well be too if we live long enough under these darkening western skies. And it's good to know as we think about that reality It's good to know even now that the shepherd's rod and staff make us secure and that the good shepherd's laying down his life for us makes us eternally secure, even if the wolves devour us in this life. And it's good to know, too, that when we reach those eternal shores, the wolves, like Pharaoh's army, will have been drowned in the sea behind us so that, verse 13, we will feed and lie down like sheep on the other side of the river, with no one to make us tremble. And then finally, with this talk of us over against those who persecute us, with this talk of us over against an unbelieving world, let's be sure that we remember that the us is not an ethnic us, that the us is not a national us, that the kingdom of God is not an us based on any human demarcations, but because we are all from whatever background redeemed by Christ. So that we may say in the fourth and final place today that the cleansed people, the humble people, the secure people are also in Zephaniah 3 a diverse people. 
A diverse people. Did you hear that in this passage? It's true. God made a specific Old Testament covenant with one particular people, the people of Israel, whose southern two tribes in particular he is addressing as his people in this book of Zephaniah. But when God speaks of his people here in chapter 3 in the last day, when God speaks of his people in the eternal age, he no longer speaks of just a people, singular, but of the peoples, plural, in verse 9. Of the people groups is how we would say it in our language. Of the various tribes and families of the earth. That's who he's speaking of in verse 9. For then, verse 9, then, in that day when the earth is devoured, verse 8, in that day when I will plant my remnant on a new earth, verses 9 through 13, then, verse 9, I will give to the peoples purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. Not just Israel, not just Judah, but all the peoples may call on the name of the Lord. Isn't that marvelous? At the time of Zephaniah's writing, it was mostly Jews who called on the name of the Lord. And even they weren't doing it all that faithfully. But calling on Yahweh was, in those days, mostly, although not entirely, but mostly a Jewish thing. But here, God says that in that day, In the eternal day, not only the Jews, and not even just some of their near neighbors who are mentioned in this book, but all the various peoples of planet earth will call on God's name. For then I will give to the peoples purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. My worshipers, my dispersed ones will bring my offerings." from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. You may remember that Ethiopia was one of the nations that God called to account back in chapter 2 for their sins. It was one of the nations that was fairly nearby to his Old Testament covenant people, alongside countries like Philistia, Moab, Ammon, and Assyria that are also mentioned in this book. But among those nations round about that are mentioned in this book, Ethiopia was definitely the most remote. Ethiopia was the farthest away. And so you can imagine in those days that it would have been a remarkable thing even to think of worshipers coming to Jerusalem all the way from Ethiopia in order to worship the Lord. Indeed, it would have been remarkable, it was remarkable, in the book of Acts when we read about the conversion of this man from Ethiopia, this Ethiopian eunuch, right? And it is remarkable when we read of another Ethiopian eunuch who loved and served the Lord even much earlier in the book of Jeremiah. Ethiopia was a good ways off from Jerusalem, and it was a blessing that God would call people even from that distance to be his worshipers. But what we need to see here is that in Zephaniah, God is spreading out his net. God is fishing for men even further afield than that. For our text in verse 9 says that from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, from beyond the land of the Ethiopian eunuch, my worshipers will come. That's the promise of the great day, is it not? That streaming into the new earth with us will not just be Jewish people, and not just be people who look like us, but Assyrians and Moabites and Ethiopians and people from well beyond the borders of those lands. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. 
Now here's another new earth blessing like the others that we have seen that has its beginning already in this life. They will come from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia in that day because they are already coming from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia by the power of the gospel in this day. They are coming in this day from China and from Zambia and from Turkey and from Morocco and from Papua New Guinea and from Mozambique and from Pleasant Ridge and from Reading, and from Deer Park, and from every tribe and tongue and people and nation in between. Why? Because Jesus died for people from every last one of those people groups. Worthy are you, Revelation 5, to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's why they will come in. That's how this prophecy is being fulfilled even in our day and why it will be fulfilled in the last day. For the same reason that all the other blessings which we have seen in this chapter are being and will be fulfilled because of Christ. Why is it that we have been cleansed here and now and that God will perfect that cleansing on and until the day of Christ Jesus? Because the blood of Jesus has been been shed. That blood, John says, which cleanses us from all sin. It's been spilled. And so we are being cleansed and we will be cleansed. And why is it that we've been humbled so as to entrust ourselves to this Jesus And why is it that there will be a humble and lowly people left behind when Christ comes? Because having bought us so dearly at Golgotha, God is committed to doing what it takes to bow our heads and bring us through His gates. Why is it that we are secure from our enemies? Because the Good Shepherd laid down His life for the sheep, John 10. And rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, Hebrews 2. And for the very same reason, the prophecy here in verses 9 and 10 will assuredly be fulfilled as well. And for the very same reason, it is being fulfilled even as we speak this morning. Representatives from all the peoples, verse 9, the elect of God from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia will come into God's kingdom, and they are coming into God's kingdom because Christ was slain for them. Christ purchased them with his blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And as Getty and Townend have taught us to sing, Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. God has not spilled his son's blood in vain. He will make sure that everyone for whom Christ came, every last one of his people will be humbled, will be wooed, will be irrevocably drawn to Christ in repentance and in faith, no matter how far beyond the rivers of Ethiopia they may be. All that the Father gives me will come to me, said our Lord, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. That's why God's people, that's why the elect will come from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, because the Father gave them to the Son, and because the Son gave His life for them, and therefore the Father will guarantee that His Son receives the gift that is set aside for Him, and that Christ will have the prize for which He died, an inheritance of nations. And praise God today, if you belong to Jesus by faith, praise God today that you are among them. 
Praise God that Cincinnati is one of those places beyond the rivers of Ethiopia from which God is gathering his worshipers. And make sure, my friends, that you are among them. For Jesus has said, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out.